Welcome, welcome. As Pastor Terry mentioned, we're going through legends and we're looking at church history to learn and better understand how God is moving through history and using different people. And tonight, I relate to really well because he's using just an ordinary person like me and I would venture to say like you. Our legend tonight is William Carey, an ordinary person that God uses in an extraordinary way. He's known as the father of modern missions, not because he was the first missionary, but because of his love and commitment to serve God's people. His example of love and commitment inspired many others, especially churches, to reach out and support missions around the world. When I was reading, I, I came across this quote from him. And he says, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. And it really struck me because so much like, yeah, a lot of us are afraid of failure. Well, he says he's not afraid of failure. And it's good that he wasn't afraid of failure because William Carey is going to have a lot of setbacks. More than you can imagine. More than I'll be able to cover in this short time frame. This is a classic rags to riches story but not the kind of earthly riches that I'm talking about. William Carey was born August 17, 1761, in Paulusbury, Northampton, England. Now, what's unique about that area is, is that George Washington's grandparents live in that area, and that will come into play a little later as we travel through uh, the life of William Carey. He died June 9th, um, 1834, in Sarampur, India. He served 41 years as a missionary there with never having a furlough back to the States. His parents were Edmund and Elizabeth Carey. They were weavers. And what they did in their small little cottage, they had a a weaving press in there and they made little patches of cloth that were later sold to middlemen that were sold in, in London. William was the oldest of five children. His wife, he eventually married at a young age of 19 to a Dorothy Plackett uh, called, uh, she went by the name of Dolly. And they had seven children together, five boys, two girls. The two girls died at a very young age in infancy due to illnesses. And one of the sons died when they were abroad in India of a, uh, of a dysentery. And he died at age five. Besides being known as the father of modern missions... He had a passion for the unsaved. When, when William Carey thought about the idea of, of being a missionary, he was told, why bother with missionary work? Isn't it better just to leave everybody with their own religion, let them do their own thing? And William Carey, and he was already landed, and he was already in India, and William Carey paused for a minute, and he thought about all the idols he saw in India, all the worship, all the different pagan practices. And he said, God has called me to these people, and I will gladly give my life trying to reach them with the gospel message. He wanted to reach the unreachable. He inspired many missionaries to follow, like Hudson Taylor to, to China, David Livingston 
to Africa. In a book, The Legacy of William Carey, the author, Vishal and Ruth Mangal Wadi, described Carey as more than a Christian missionary in India. Other job descriptions might include a botanist, economist, medical humanitarian, uh, media pioneer, agriculturalist, translator, educator, astronomer, library pioneer, conservationist, crusader for women's rights, public servant, moral reformer, and a cultural transformer. William definitely started out with a modest um, start. It's a drawing of the house that he lived in. It was tiny, two room. The parents, like I said, were weavers. That big monstrosity was in one of the rooms with all the children running around. It was very difficult. But at the age of six, the father gets hired as a schoolmaster, as a, as a parish clerk for the Church of St. James the Great. There's a picture of the church right there, which is part of the Church of England, the official state religion of King George III. It was a Protestant sect described as lax and complacent. So they had no um, idea or anything having to do with, with missions or the Great Commission. The benefit, though, of this new job is they moved to a bigger house. And at the bigger house, they had more room, and William was able to go to school. Two wealthy men from that area paid for 12 children to go to school, and because William's dad worked there, he was able to get one of those positions. Not only was he able to go to school, he was able to go into the library and see all the different library books and read different books. He read Robinson Crusoe, and he just was loved it. And Gulliver's Travel, and his friends you would call him the adventurer, or they would call him Columbus, because he was always like pretending of, of going to distant lands. At age 11, he stumbled across a book while he was there, because he loved flowers and plants, and it was a book of flowers, but he couldn't read the print. So he asked his dad, like, what, what, he knew it was a foreign language, but he didn't know what it was. Like, what's this print? So his dad told him it was Latin. And then the dad went to the library, pulled the library book on, on, on Latin, and William taught himself Latin at 11 years old. And then he taught himself Greek. And he was really, had a, a knack or a gift from God to be able to learn languages uh, quickly. At the age of 12, though, that's when they had to leave school. School only went up to 12 years old. William liked the outside, so William wanted to be a farmer. And he started working at a farm, um, a sheep farm, plowing, planting, taking care of the sheep. He loved the outdoors, but the outdoors didn't love him. He would get a severe rash for being outside in the sun. So bad that he tolerated it for two years, but after two years, like his, his dad and his parents were saying, look, you, you gotta get an inside job. And then that's how he became a shoemaker. But as you can see from looking at that picture, it's got the world map in the background. He's still fascinated with the world and everything about it. At this place where he works, he meets a young man that's also an apprentice called John War. John War didn't go to the Church of England. John War went, was a member of the Baptist Dissenter Church. A dissenter was somebody that disagreed with the Church of England, disagreed with King George, and disagreed with the war that was going on in the United States. 
the uh, Revolutionary War. Napoleon was also on the scene um, in, uh, in the French Revolution, but a dissenter was against everything that King George was doing. William Ward, or excuse me, William Carey and John War, they had a lot of good conversations about religion and who was right. Were the dissenters, was the Church of England. And William was quite the debater, so he thought that the Church of England was right. And John Ward would just, for, for years, would invite him to a dissenter meeting. When, when William Carey was 17 years old, the king, George III, put out a proclamation that we were going to have a national day of prayer. And William would love to pray for his nation, but he did not want to pray for the fall of the, the, the uh, people in the United States. Remember, George Washington's grandparents were from Northampton, and the rebel colonists became champions to a lot of people living in that area. So William couldn't bring himself to pray against the the American uh, revolutionary uh, people there. So at age 17, age 17, William Carey goes to a dissenter meeting. He doesn't even know what to expect. He's nervous. He walks in the door and he hears many short messages of of group of, of people uh, gathered. They would get up and they would say something. They would sit down. Then one man stood up and powerfully read Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. It it shows you how powerful God's word is, right? Where one verse can, can just change the direction of a person's life. That one verse spoken by one man just knocked his socks off. His whole life, he tried to do what was right in the sight of others, going to the right church, saying the right thing, being in the fashionable camp. Despite all this, he never felt any power to change who he was. Now, he started to think, maybe I should go outside the camp of the state religion and be among the dissenters. And he did. And this is where, after his conversion, where he knew Christ more personally than he did just in name, he, after two years, at the age of 19, he becomes a part-time pastor. And he actually was still a shoemaker. He had to walk eight miles to and from every other week to give a message to a small group of, of mat makers. They, they couldn't really afford to pay him much. But after a year, now he's 19 years old, he gets a full-time position where he can just study the Bible. And when he's studying the Bible, he realizes the Great Commission is still in effect. And that Christians should share the gospel message with others, even people far across distant lands. Since he's a pastor now, he gets invited to a pastor's meeting of the local pastors. And the older, more seasoned pastors ask if if any of the young guys have any ideas, anything they want to share. So William stands up and suggests that when Jesus came to earth, he told his disciples to preach the good news 
and that it didn't end with the apostles, but it should be carried on by us. The lead pastor, Reverend John Ryland, told William to sit down. And he pointed his finger at him just like that. And then he looked at the rest of the crowd and he said, Here we have an example of a young man who knows nothing about the plan of God. The Almighty does not need a man to speak for him. He will enlighten the heathen in his own way and in his own time. The room was silent. The other ministers there didn't say a word. William respectfully didn't say a word. But he wondered, is that true what he said? Or from my reading, is it true that what Jesus said we should still do? The Great Commission. So he started to study and he took careful notes and and the notes became an essay and the essay became a manuscript and then the manuscript became a book. And William Carey wrote uh, about an 87-page book. And he started with the hypothesis, it's hard to see on there, but an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicality of further undertakings are considered. So what he does is in this book, which he didn't even plan to make a book, he starts looking into the four different things. He looks into the Great Commission. Did Jesus say, go and make disciples of all nations? Yes, check. He, did Jesus say, teaching them to reserve all things that I commanded? Check. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Check, check, check. And then the second part is he looks at other examples in Scripture. He looks at Paul. Paul had three missionary trips, three journeys, and he went to heathen nations. And then he looked at the history of other missionaries in the world, people that went out before that, that, that did great things. And then William mapped out the whole world. He broke it into four different continents with, with uh, Europe, Asia, America, um, and, and South America. I think I messed one up. But he broke it into the four different regions. And then he listed how many people live there, what's their religion, how many were heathens. And, and he says, wow, I know for a fact from looking at the Bible that the Great Commission should not stop. He doesn't have the money to publish a book. One of his friends, Tom Potts, says, you know what? This is a great book. I'll publish it for you. So he puts the book together, publishes it. Three weeks later, three weeks later, The missionary, the, the, the little group of, not missionary, the little group of ministers are meeting and they want, they want him, they want William Carey to speak. This time they understood what William wanted. And he didn't go in there, you know, boldly or arrogantly. But he just started telling him what God told him about the Great Commission. And and he outlined to them the highlights of the book. And then he closed by reading this verse. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, 
And your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. And after he read that, he finished with this right here. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And silence in the room. They knew he was right. And it it, it didn't take long. Very shortly after that, a small group of ministers immediately met to make plans of how they could send out missionaries to the ends of the earth. And they decided to pool their resources together and to create a missionary society. They started asking themselves questions. Who's going to go? What's the qualifications? Where, where should they go first? Did anyone know anyone who was qualified and wanted to go? Should they, uh, how should they get there? Um, should they get a job? Should they take their family? Should they travel back to England to give updates? A lot had to be considered because there was no model or anything for them to follow. Then William gets a letter, or the society gets a letter in the mail that William opens from a Dr. John Thomas. Now, Dr. Thomas worked at, as, a, as a doctor on one of the ships of the East India Company, and I'll, I'll tell you who they are in a second, but he worked as a doctor there. And one of the times where he was in the Bay of Bengal, he saw just the people were suffering and they were in so much pain. So he ends up leaving his job and working, you know, helping people, setting up a little clinic in India. So that, that, he's explaining all of that in the letter. So the, the missionary group says, let's set up for, for Dr. Thomas to meet with us. So they meet with Dr. Thomas, and Dr. Thomas, you know, tells them of, the, of everything that he's did there, and then he pulls out of his pocket a letter from a high-ranking uh, Brahmins, and that they have like a caste system, so these were the scholarly people that on that letter they wrote, have compassion on us and send us preachers, and such as will do translation work. Now... William hears that and his heart was just pounding so much because he knows that God has given him the gift of translation and he knows he's got, he wants to do this so bad. And, uh, but he just sits quiet. The board asks the doctor, what would you like from us? And, and the, the board, um, the doctor says, I would like for you to pay my way there and my expenses for one year. After, you know, after one year, uh, you know, I'll take care of myself. And everybody's nodded. Yes, yes, we'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll pull our money together so, so you can go there for a year. We have our first missionary. And then he says, another thing. If, if, if I could just have somebody go with me, I know that if there was two of us, we could do just so much more. William Carey stood up as fast as he could. I will go. Yes, I will go. Yes, I will go to India. And everybody just surrounded him and congratulated him, and they were just so happy for him. Now, his wife, his wife was not happy. They already lost um, two children. She was pregnant, five months pregnant. And she said, I'm not going. And he begged her to come. This is God's calling me there. His dad loved William, but his dad thought he was, was mad and he lost his mind. He, he, he said, he told his son, look, you can't even be outside. 
in the sun with your skin, and now you're going to go to India? How, how are you going to do that? The church he was pastoring at the time also was very sad, saying they didn't want him to go. Short story is his wife ends up going. The dad understands. The church realizes that they were praying because under, under William Carey's leadership, they were all pretty, already praying for missionaries. They just didn't know they would be the first one to make the sacrifice. But as they were preparing to go, they realized they couldn't go. The East India Company was established in the 1600s by Queen Elizabeth, where she gave wealthy businessmen a charter to establish a company that would be exclusive English agency for trade with India. The company was called the East India Company, and it was soon the world leader in export of calico, indigo dye, cotton, silk, spices, and tea. The businessmen that ran the East India Company were very powerful and strongly influenced by the parliament. And the only ones they let in there are merchants and government officials, and specifically they did not want missionaries in there. They didn't want missionaries in there confusing the people, teaching them about freedom and independence. So William Carey asked himself, what am I going to do? So there was a well-known preacher at the time, which all of you know, uh, the writer of Amazing Grace. So he went to get advice from John Newton. And he said to John Newton, what am I going to do? The, the East End Company won't let me in. He said, then conclude that God has nothing for you to accomplish. But if he has, no power on earth can hinder you. And this is how positive William Carey is. He, he kept it with the second part of that, this sentence here. But, it, but if he has, no power on earth can hinder no power on earth can hinder. No power on earth can hinder. And, and, and he stuck with that. So they don't have permits, and now he boards a ship. I wish I had a picture of a ship for you. I don't. It was not a very big ship, though. And it's hard to see, but I have two circles up there. I have England. Look at Africa. Up on the top, there's a little circle. That's the England area. And then we have India circled over here towards um, the left side. And this is the route they would take all the way down and back up around. They were supposed to stop in Cape Hope, and I'm hoping that comes back on. Thank you. Um, they were supposed to stop at Cape Hope, but if you only can sail, it's sailing now, only can sail at certain times with the winds and the currents. So they end up getting into this wicked storm where during this trip, two people die. William's doing burials uh, at the sea. His, they can't stop. Two of the sails end up busting off. They have one. They have to make this makeshift one so they can keep on going. And the captain of the ship, Captain Christmas, said, we, we can't stop. We have to keep going. So they really were, had a food shortage and all the rest in, in order to get there. Well, they finally get there. And now they're at the, the, the Bay of Bengal. And as they're sitting there, William Carey's like, has the orders, and he keeps reading them over and over again. If any subject of his majesty, not being lawfully licensed, should at any time repair or 
to be found in East Indies, such persons were to be declared guilty of a crime and misdemeanor and be liable to find and imprisonment. And he just keeps reading it and reading it, trying to look for like a loophole and praying at the same time. And then he goes on and he reads the order to the, to the captain or the commander of the ship. Every commander of the vessel arriving in India is to give their pilot a faithful return of all passengers on board and stating whether or not they have a license from the East India Company. And on this one, he's like, I got it. I know what we can do here. I don't want Captain Christmas to lie that we have a license. But as long as we disembark before this pilot, see, when the ship got there, a pilot would come on board to guide them in because he'd know where all the deep waters were and all that. He could get them in. So William says to the, to the captain, if you don't mind, allow us to disembark now before the pilot gets here. And that's how they got there. And they entered the country um, illegally. And when William Carey put his uh, feet on the, on the soil there, he just looked around and he's just like, so thankful that he was there. He was taking in all the sights and the sounds and the smells, and he was just so so thankful. But they had many challenges laying ahead, and they started off living in Calcutta, but it was too expensive to, to live there. And then somebody that knew Dr. Thomas told, told uh, William that they could get a place in the Sutherlands and free of charge, no, no, no rent at all. And you could live there and you could farm. As they made their way there, there was, he realized that it was infested with, with, with tigers and leopards and rhinoceroses and cobras and pythons. But William Carey kept a positive attitude carried a rifle with them at all times, and that they, uh, they, they, they made out okay in that area. But they did struggle. Then a God-given event happened, and, and he even says, this appears to be a remarkable, remarkable opening in divine providence for our comfortable support. Well, I have that other arrow there, is Mon, Mon Dubai. He was offered a job there to work in an indigo plant company, and he would have like 90 employees. And indigo is like this a, a, a plant where you would press it and you can make dye out of it. Very lucrative. And he was given a house and funds to live and everything. What he did, though, as soon as he found out how much he would make, he calculated, you know what? We can live on 25% of this, and 75% we can put for translation and, and doing missionary work. About three years later, he completed the first draft, first translation of the New Testament in Bengali. He was happy, but he couldn't print it. He needed to have a printing machine. And didn't have any converts. And when he looked at why he didn't have any converts, the, the friend, Ram Bosch, who was the friend of uh, Dr. Thomas that helped him get him that first place in Sunderland's, told him that there's just so many gods, so many traditions, and then you have this caste system where the different groups don't talk to each other. So he was really struggling but with God's divine, perfect timing, three more missionaries arrived. William Ward, which was a, a printer, okay? 
William Ord was a printer. John Marshman and Hannah Marshman were a, he was a businessman, she was a teacher. So they started setting up schools. That same year, William Carey was asked if he, if he would be a professor at the Fort William College. Fort William College was being set up, modeled, modeled after Oxford and Cambridge University. They needed someone who knew enough Bengali, Sanskrit, and English to teach the students. When they saw how William Carey translated the New Testament into Bengali, they thought he was the best person for the job. When William Carey got the offer, he, he said, they don't know that I don't have a high school diploma and I don't have a, a college degree. So he went and told them in person. You know, he didn't want to you know, send a letter there. He wanted to tell them in person. So they told him it didn't matter. And he became the head of the language department. The position came with benefits in which he earned a good salary every month, a place to live and food. And most of the money that he had, he sent back to missionary work. Finally, in 1801, the first complete New Testament in Bengali rolled off the presses. The work represented eight years of work, and no one had any idea the role that this Bengali New Testament would play in that region. Then they have their first Hindu convert, Krishnapal. After Krishnapal is converted, he preaches the gospel for 20 years before he passes away. And you know what? For the next 10 years, everything was just running so smoothly. They continued translating the Bible into other Indian dialects. They opened schools. They worked on social reform. Everything was going so good. And then a fire. William Carey was eating lunch and John or Joshua Marshman came running in out of breath telling him that the, 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 the printing press and everywhere where they printed, all the copies, everything was on fire. And, and William Carey couldn't believe it. And Basically, after they had this conversation back and forth, everything was lost. Approximately nine to $10,000, which was a lot of money back then, was gone. All the translations, the printing press, all the, everything was gone. And William Carey said, in one short evening, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God? And, and that is just um, um, like, how unsearchable are they? Like, who can figure out why God would allow that? The people that lived there, and some thought that, that the people in India, one of the caste systems, started the fire. They didn't want them there. But no one knows how the fire started. But they thought they were going to pack up and leave. But William Carey said, we must not let this bring us down. We must stay the course, trusting God, who has brought us safe thus far. We can rebuild and rejoice and replace what, what has been lost. And they started rebuilding right away. Now, what happened, though, was the people in India of the people at the college, his students immediately pitched in. We're going to help out. They raised money. The, the owner of the Indigo factory said, you know what? We're getting you another printing press. And he got him a printing press. It took six months, but in six months, the news spread to Great Britain. 
Christians there sprung into action. William Carey in the printing press was the topic of conversations and prayer in nearly every church in the nation. And the first time many people in England had heard of William Carey, and what they heard interested them. Individual churches gave what they could towards rebuilding the printing press. Soon the missionary society said, enough. We, we, you, you gave enough. That's how much people were given money. Everywhere in England, people were asking, what does William Carey look like? They wanted a portrait. So he was very reluctant to do it. But he ended up posing. Now, I have the two pictures up there. The one on uh, your left is the full picture done by Robert Holmes, um, the color version. I, I couldn't get a colored version, so I put the two up there. But that's how he chose to be, sitting with all his books, with a Sanskrit translation in front of him, and... Um, you know, doing, doing his, his job. The fire and subsequent fundraiser in Great Britain had another effect, though. People who had no care of missionary before now began to question the East India Company's policy of not letting missionaries in. Wilbur, or, or William Wilberforce, he took on the East India Company. He successfully campaigned against slavery in um, Great Britain, and now he's going to fight against the East India Company. He gets a petition of a half a million people signed and basically goes to the, the parliament, and at the parliament, he tells them that Kerry's contributions to literature, translation work, cultural understanding, horticulture, and agriculture is just remarkable. And not only that, he gives most of the money that he earns back to the missionaries. The politicians were impressed, and in 1813, the charter of the East Indy Company was amended to allow missionaries. This slide's a little busy, and it's actually almost a two-page document. And this was written in 1805 by William Carey and those uh, uh, William Ward, Joshua, uh, and Hannah Marshman. And they wrote what they thought would be the best things. And I'm, and I'm not going to go over all of these just because of time. But on here, he tells, he says, we need to value every soul. We need to gain information about the people, be sensitive to the culture. We need to watch for opportunities to do good. Preach Christ crucified. We need to gain rapport with the people. We need to build up and watch over them. We're like their spiritual parents. We need to raise up native preachers so that they can press on with the word. We need to translate the scriptures into the, their native language. We need to be in prayer. And this last one is, let us never think that our time, our gifts, our strengths, our families, or even the clothes on our back are ours. So that was their, their, um, their mission of going forward. William Carey simplified it in basically three parts. We need to preach the gospel, we need to translate the Bible in the native language, and we need to establish schools. When, when William Carey was on his deathbed and people in England and in India started collecting relics from him, because he, he started to be well-known, they started talking about him and wanting his stuff. He calls over another missionary 
Alexander Duff, and he says, Mr. Duff, you have been talking about Dr. Carey, Dr. Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's savior. They did talk about William Carey's savior, but they did also talk about William Carey. There was over 50 biographies on him in various languages. Universities, um, colleges, schools, missionaries are, are named after him. <clears throat> on his tombstone, he wanted inscribed, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I do want to spend two minutes on something else that, that happened here, and I, I skipped this slide. He did so much for social reform. They were, basically, if you were sick, they would carry you to the, the Gandhi's River and just lay you there till you died. If you were a leopard, they would have nothing to do with you. He witnessed a leper being, being killed, uh, burned to death, and he, he, the leper was trying to get out of uh, uh, the pit that he was in, but the family just kept pushing him back. They felt by, if you had a harsh death, that it would be more purifying for you when you were reincarnated. Infanticide happened all the time. The mothers at that time thought if they sacrificed their baby, that um, it would be good and, and they would be more holy. He witnessed a, a baby that was a boatman actually sa pulled out of the water, gave back to the mother. The mother took the baby, broke the neck, and threw the baby back into the river. That's the different cultural things that, that he, he needed to learn when they were there. The widow burning, he was walking one side one time by the river, and he saw this crowd and this lady walking in white, and she was getting on, um, going to be burned. You, really, you can't tell that much from the picture, but they're holding the, uh, William back here, and he's protesting to them for her not to do it. The women, they would either drug the women or they would, um, they would force the woman onto the pile. They would pour this hot, buttery substance on them, put um, like, uh, like sticks on top of them so they couldn't move, and then they would burn them alive. Now, what he did, though, is he fought against all of that. And part of his legacy, this is one of the, the slides I skipped by mistake, that he translated the Bible into six different languages, the complete Bible. He translated portions of the Bible in 29 other, um, language, uh, 29 other languages. Brown University, they thought he did such good work, they gave him the Doctor, the doctor of Divinity degree. He started a weekly publication, Friend of India, which is still today. It, they changed the name to Statesman. The uh, Joshua William Ward and Joshua Marshman and John uh, William Carey became known as the Sarampur Trio. They opened 100 schools. They encouraged girls to go to school and they did a lot for horticultural work. Now, how did William Carey accomplish so much? How? <laughs> but God. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are, 
that no flesh should glory in his presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example we see in this legend, uh, William Carey. We know he was just an ordinary man, but he felt the calling. He felt the conviction. And we thank you for the love and commitment he had uh, to the lost world. We pray, Lord, that each one of us, this church, all churches, would just have that calling of love and commitment for those that are lost. We pray even now for the many missionaries in our own church that, that we support and sponsor. We pray for them. We pray for their, their, their work that they're doing in the Philippines and in Mexico and North Africa and um, Israel. Lord, bless them, encourage them, send support, keep them safe. We need you, Lord, to continue to guide, continue to direct. I also like to ask right now if there's somebody here like William Carey that went to that dissenter meeting and just realized that there is a true and living God and it's not just a state religion, it's not just It's not just a man-made thing, but it's a divine thing. And if that's you, just in the quietness of your heart, say, Lord, I need more of you. Fill me now. I confess I've sinned. I confess I've done wrong. I confess I make so many mistakes. but fill me with your Holy Spirit. Guide me with your word, your Holy Scripture, and just help me to be a better me, a better person, a better follower of you. We do love you, Lord, and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.